the stuff of nightmares. Hey, what's happening, everybody? My name is Rick, and I'll be your guide on this little journey to get your true crime and paranormal fix. We'll be talking about everything from monsters in the closets to monsters next door. So make sure you keep an eye on your neighbor, you look under your bed, you check your closets, because the stuff of nightmares starts now. Warning. This episode may contain graphic descriptions of violence that some people may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. Why does society value one person's life higher than another? Does a person's wealth, social status, or power make his or her life more relevant than others? Why is it that we as a society look up to the people that are wealthy and down at those that live in poverty? And why does society not care when someone who lives a high-risk lifestyle goes missing? It's only a newsworthy event if they end up being found murdered. Are they not still someone's son or daughter? Still someone's brother or sister? Or still someone's mother or father? According to a recent study, 22% of serial murder victims in the U.S. between 1970 and 2009 were known sex workers. Over the last decade, that number has climbed to 43%. Because the nature of their work is illegal in most states, they are less likely to report being a victim in a crime. If a sex worker is reported missing, the police don't necessarily consider it foul play, unless they find a body. Serial killers have been targeting sex workers since back in the late 19th century when Jack the Ripper would prowl the streets looking for his next victim. Unfortunately, because of their social status and the stigma associated with prostitutes, they were viewed as disposable, social outcasts, and not important. But none of these women chose to be victimized or murdered. The Ripper Crew In the early 1980s, Chicago, Illinois was rocked by a string of brutal, ritualistic murders that lasted for 18 months. These murders would be tied to a group of four people that called themselves the Ripper Crew. During their reign of terror, they would be suspected of killing 18 people and using parts of the victims in satanic rituals. On May 23, 1981, 28-year-old Linda Sutton was abducted as she walked by Wrigley Stadium. On June 1st, police received a call about a foul smell coming from an empty lot behind the Rip Van Winkle Motel. Here, police found a severely decomposed body, which was mostly bones with small amounts of flesh still clinging to them. Even though the body was in such a bad state, detectives knew she had been murdered. They found a pair of handcuffs still attached to her wrists, and there was a gag still in her mouth. Judging by the state of her body, detectives did not think that this was the crime scene, but rather a dump site. Because her body was severely decomposed, the medical examiner had to use dental records to identify the body, and he also determined Linda had only been dead for three days. Her advanced state of decay had left the cause of death a mystery. That mystery would be solved when he found that the reason the body had decomposed so fast was because both of her breasts had been removed, leaving large open wounds which allowed parasites to devour the body. During the autopsy, 
He could tell that Linda had been gang raped, sodomized, and her left breast had been cut off, all while she was still alive. He uncovered that she had been stabbed and mutilated in various areas during the week that she had been held against her will. Once she was identified, police found that she had been a prostitute with a long history of arrests. On February 12, 1982, a 35-year-old cocktail waitress was abducted from her car. When police were called about the abandoned vehicle, they found the car had run out of gas with the keys in the ignition and a purse on the passenger seat. After canvassing the area, her nude body would be found down the embankment near the road. She had been raped, mutilated, and tortured with her breast removed. Police at the time requested the press not mention the breast removal so they could use that detail during the interrogations. A few days after the discovery of the cocktail waitress's body, police would find the body of a Hispanic woman. She had been raped and strangled. While her breasts had not been removed, they were severely bitten and her killer had masturbated over her body. On May 15, 1982, 21-year-old Lorraine Borowski was seen leaving her apartment at 8 a.m. and walked to her job a few blocks away. Her boss arrived to work at 8.30 a.m. and found the door still locked. He noticed that there were women's items scattered along the sidewalk. He picked up the cosmetics, keys, and pair of women's shoes and took them inside, thinking someone lost their purse. He called the police, and while waiting for them to arrive, looked closer at the items he picked up. That's when he noticed the keychain had his office's name on it. He tried the key in the lock, and it opened the door. When police arrived, he told them he thought the items were Lorraine's. Police believe she was abducted as she walked up to the door to open it. Her body would not be discovered until four months later. 30-year-old Shui Mack, a native of Hong Kong who had only moved to the U.S. three years prior, was working in her family's restaurant. On May 29, 1982, Shui left the restaurant with her brother after work. On the way home, her and her brother got into an argument over a table her brother had borrowed from the restaurant. He pulled the car over on the shoulder of the highway and made her get out to wait for their parents to come by on their way home. That night, Shuey's sister Ling was driving the other car home and passed Shuey on the side of the road. When both cars arrived at their home without Shuey, the family went out trying to find her. Once they were unable to locate her, they called the police. It would be months until her body would be discovered. On June 13, 1982, Angel York, a known prostitute, was picked up by a customer. Once she climbed into his van, she realized the customer was not alone. Her attackers handcuffed her to the side of the van where they proceeded to hand her a knife. One man told her to use the knife and cut her breast. Once she did, one of the men grabbed the knife and cut it deeper. Then he masturbated into the wound. Once he was finished, he grabbed a piece of duct tape and used it to close the wound before dumping Angel onto the street. Police were called, but unfortunately, Angel did not have much information about the van or the men, which could help the police find her attackers. A few months later, on August 28, 1992, Sandra Delaware, a teenage sex worker, was found stabbed and strangled on the bank of the Chicago River. Her wrists had been bound behind her back with a shoelace, her bra had been knotted around her neck and her left breast had been amputated. 
The autopsy would show that the police had missed her killers by mere hours. She had only been dead for six hours. Then, on September 8, 1992, 30-year-old marketing executive Rose Beck Davis was found dead in an alley. Her battered body was found dumped under a stairwell of the North Lake Shores apartments. Police noticed the injuries were similar to the other victims' wounds. The autopsy showed Rose had been raped, stabbed repeatedly, and strangled with a black sock. Her stomach had numerous small cuts and punctures, and her left breast had been cut and mutilated like the other victims as well. Her cause of death was determined to be from the blows of a hatchet to her head and her face. A few days later, on September 11th, Carol Pappas, the 42-year-old wife of Chicago Cubs pitcher Mitt Pappas, disappeared. At the time, it was suspected that she was also a victim of those involved in the murders, but ended up being ruled out when her body was found five years later. Her body was found in her car in the bottom of a pond. Her cause of death was ruled a drowning. Shuey Mack's body was finally discovered on September 30, 1982, after police received a call of a woman's body in a field in South Barrington. The mutilated woman was only able to be identified by the clothes she was wearing on the night she disappeared. The autopsy would show that she had died from a fracture to her skull. Her body was found roughly one mile from where her brother made her get out of the car on the night of her disappearance. As bodies continued to pile up, police had little to no evidence and no suspects. It was hard to determine if they were dealing with one murderer or multiple different killers. Even though many victims were prostitutes, some were victims of opportunity. There was no pattern to the crimes, no witnesses, and nothing to point them in the right direction to find the monster that was prowling the street for victims. But that was about to change. On October 6, 1982, 20-year-old sex worker Beverly Washington's body was found by the railroad tracks in Humboldt Park. Her beaten and mutilated body was identical to other victims that had been found, except she was still alive. She was found with multiple stab wounds, an amputated left breast, a severely slashed right breast, and serious other injuries. Beverly would end up being the break in the case that police had been looking for. She told a detailed account of the evening she was attacked. She told police that a red Dodge van with tinted windows pulled up to her and asked how much for a date. She became suspicious when the driver offered her more than the price she told him. Reluctantly, she got into the van anyway. She would describe the driver as a slender white male about 25 years old with greasy brown hair and a mustache. The driver pulled out a gun and told her to get into the back of the van. The van had a wooden divider with a door that separated the front and back of the van. Once inside the back of the van, Beverly noticed the ceiling and floors were covered with carpet while the walls were lined with shelves that held electrical wiring and tools. She was ordered to take her clothes off, which she did. Then she was handcuffed to the wall and forced to perform oral sex on the driver. He then proceeded to rape her, and when he was finished, he forced some unknown pills into her mouth and made her swallow them. As she started to pass out, she noticed he had some kind of cord in his hands and knew he was going to kill her. The next thing she remembers is waking up in the hospital. A few hours later, the red van would pull up next to a phone booth 
and opened fire on Rafael Torado and another man. Both men would be shot, but it would be Rafael who was the intended target and the only one to die. It turns out the Ripper crew had started to take murder for hire contracts so that they could earn money doing what they enjoyed doing, which was killing. On October 10th, 1982, four months after she disappeared, Lorraine Borowski's body was found by hunters walking through Clarendon Hills Cemetery, which was not far away from where Linda Sutton was found. Her nude body was found dumped in a thicket with her clothes scattered around nearby. She had been repeatedly raped and a wire had been wrapped around her breast until it was severed from her body. Finally, one of her attackers ended her life with an ax. It is believed her killers kept her alive for some time after abducting her and also kept her corpse for a while before dumping her in the thicket. Detectives would go to Sierra Avenue to pass out flyers and talk to prostitutes, hoping that someone would know something about the red van or its occupants. Police would eventually locate the van parked in the 2900 block of North Central Avenue. Behind the wheel was a husky red-haired man who did not fit Beverly Washington's description. When officers looked in the van, they were shocked to see it was exactly as Beverly had described to them. The man at the wheel, Edward Spritzer, was questioned about the van and he told them it was his boss, Robin Geck's van. The police followed Edward to the apartment he and Robin were remodeling and when Robin came out to meet them, they were surprised to see he was the man that Beverly had described. The officers told Robin that his van fit the description of a vehicle that had been used in a crime and that he would need to go to headquarters for questioning. While he was being questioned, police techs were searching the van for evidence. They noted that the van had carpet on the ceiling and floor and shelving on the sides like the victim had stated. They also found a white pill which turned out to be a sedative and similar to what the victim reported having to swallow. Now that police had the name of a possible suspect, they started looking into his background. They found that two years prior to the first murder, Gecht had been arrested and charged with contributing to the sexual delinquency of a minor. Also, during the time of Shui Mack's disappearance, he had been living in the area where she disappeared. They also found that as a teenager, he sexually molested his sister and was sent to live with his grandmother. During police questioning about the van, Robin initially agreed to talk to police. But when police had asked to meet sometime later for a follow-up, Robin brought an attorney along. Police interrogated Edward Spritzer for hours about the murders until he finally broke down and confessed. He admitted to being the driver when Robin shot the two men at the phone booth. He then told about a time he was driving the van and Robin made him slow down and approach a prostitute standing by the road. Robin talked to her and she agreed to get into the van where he would have sex with her. Then they pulled into an alley and parked. The woman got out to walk away and Robin followed her out of the van. He proceeded to cut off her breast and bring it back with him to the van where he threw it on the floor. He told of a time where they picked up a black female and blindfolded and gagged her. He said Robin shot her in the back of the head, attached bowling balls to her legs and neck with chains, and dropped her into a body of water. This body was never found. He also talked about the time Robin beat a woman to death with a hammer, 
Edward claimed he didn't like all the blood. He said it took him a while before he could remove a breast himself at the request of his leader, Robin. He said he wasn't even sure if the victim was alive or dead when he cut off her breasts, but once they were removed, Robin made him have sex with the gaping wounds. He told of another victim that was alive when Robin cut her breasts off and had sex with the wounds. He stated the woman was screaming and blood was gushing from her wound, but Robin wasn't even phased. And when he finished, he beat the woman to death with an axe. He eventually confessed to being involved in seven different murders. At the same time Edward was being interrogated, Robin was also being questioned with his lawyer. Investigators placed photos of the seven victims on the table in front of him, but he denied knowing any of them. They took him down the hall and showed him Edward confessing to the murders. When Edward noticed Robin outside the interrogation room, his face drained of color and he tried to retract his confession, saying Robin didn't kill anyone. He went on to blame his girlfriend's brother, Andrew Cocorales, claiming he was the one who murdered those women. When Robin was asked who Andrew was, he replied that Andrew worked for him and gave police his address. He denied knowing anything about what Andrew was confessing, and due to lack of evidence, police had to release him. But police would not stop trying to get him. They took a photo array to the hospital, and Beverly picked Robin out of the photo lineup as the man who attacked her. When police went and interviewed people in Robin's past, they were told by old girlfriends that Robin asked if he could stab their breasts with pins while they were having sex. His wife admitted he sliced her breast one time during sex, but did not report it to police. When detectives talked to people that knew him from the neighborhood, most of them feared him, like he had some kind of power over them and could make them do whatever he wanted. As evidence against the two men started to pile up, police were hoping to find anything in their past that could connect the men to any of the murders. Police tracked Robin back to a room at the Rip Van Winkle Motel that he had rented for a few months back in 1981. It turns out, he wasn't the only one that had rented a room there at that time. Three other adjoining rooms were rented, one to Edward Spritzer, and the others were rented to brothers Andrew and Thomas Cocorales. When questioned about the men, the motel manager remembered them well. He told investigators the men would always have loud parties, they frequently brought numerous women back to their rooms, and he also believed they were involved in a cult. Knowing the men had all lived at the motel, police wondered if Edward's confession of Andrew killing the women might have some merit. Investigators decided it was time to question the Cocorales brothers to see if they were involved in the murders. When investigators first talked to Thomas, he gave conflicting statements and could not stick with the story. He failed a polygraph test and not long after, he confessed. He told detectives that he and the other men would take women back to Robin's place where they had a satanic chapel in the attic. There they would rape and torture the women using knives and ice picks to mutilate their bodies. They would use a wire garrote to remove the woman's breast and would have sex with the wound of the removed breast. They would then all masturbate onto the breast before eating a piece of it as a sacrament. Robin would then keep the remaining portion of the breast in a box as a trophy. At one time, Thomas claimed to count 15 breasts in Robin's trophy case. He admitted to being present during three of the murders. 
When Andrew was brought in for questioning, it didn't take long for him to confess. He told police about the women they had kidnapped and murdered, and the details were very similar to the coroner's reports. He said they usually used knives, but would sometimes use razors, tin can lids, and can openers to mutilate the women. He told police they used piano wire as a garrote to remove the woman's breasts and confirmed the crew would take turns masturbating into the breasts before eating parts of it during their rituals. He admitted to being a part of 18 murders, telling chilling details of one in particular. He said when they took Sandra Delaware, they shoved a rock in her mouth to keep her from screaming while they attacked her. They forced a wine bottle into her vagina, making her bleed profusely, and they stabbed her with a knife to mutilate her. Now that police had confessions, they arrested the men and executed search warrants on the homes of the crew members. Inside Robin Geck's attic, they found the Satanic Chapel. They also found his trophy box and a rifle that matched the one that killed Rafael Torado at the phone booth shooting. At trial, Robin Geck tried to avoid going to trial by claiming he was insane. After he was evaluated by numerous mental health professionals, he was declared competent to stand trial. Unfortunately, his first trial ended in a mistrial. His second trial began on September 20, 1983. The prosecution laid out their case that Robin was the leader of the Ripper crew. They presented the court with the evidence they recovered from his satanic chapel, which included the trophy box and the rifle. They told the jury how the crew would kidnap women, torture them with needles, knives, and ice picks before removing their breasts for their rituals. Numerous female witnesses testified that Robin had inflicted wounds to their breasts and had asked them to cut their nipples off for him. None of the other crew members would take the stand against Robin. In a bold move, Robin took the stand and instead of denying he had anything to do with any of the attacks or murders as he had in the past, he admitted to being involved in Beverly Washington's attack. He did, however, deny raping and murdering anyone. Since no other crew members would testify against him and police had no direct evidence against him, he would only be charged with the rape, aggravated battery, deviant sexual assault, armed violence, and attempted murder of Beverly Washington. On February 17, 1984, Robin Gecht was found guilty on all charges and sentenced to 120 years in prison. Robin Gecht will be eligible for parole in 2022. Thomas Cocorales tried to have his confession thrown out when he went to trial, but he lost the motion. He was convicted of the rape and murder of Lorraine Borowski in 1984 and was sentenced to life in prison after the judge threw out the prosecution's death penalty sentence. In 1986, the state appeals court reversed the guilty verdict, citing legal errors in the original trial. He was granted a new trial and in 1987 pleaded guilty to the murder of Lorraine Borowski and was sentenced to 70 years in prison. In 2017, Thomas came up for parole and authorities tried to have him committed as a sexually violent person and tried to force him to stay behind bars. In order for this to occur, authorities had to prove that Thomas would commit more acts of sexual violence. 
They stated he had admitted his involvement in more rapes and murders since he was incarcerated. They failed to convince the parole board, and Thomas Cucurales was released from prison on March 29, 2019, after serving only half of his sentence. He must register as a sex offender as long as he lives in Illinois. Andrew Cucurales would be made to stand trial in two separate counties. He would first be brought to trial for the rape and murder of Rose Beck Davis. He confessed to abducting Rose with the other crew members, saying they forced her into the van and beat her with a hatchet. He was found guilty of rape and murder and sentenced to life in prison. He would be brought to trial a second time in another county for rape and murder of Lorraine Borowski and Rose Beck Davis. He tried to recant his confession of raping and murdering both women. The prosecution asked why he had told six different detectives and two prosecutors the same statements. Andrew said he had been told what to say and had been beaten by police. The jury deliberated for three hours trying to decide if it was possible that eight different people could force him to lie about the killings. He would be found guilty and sentenced to death. He would appeal numerous times, once claiming he had a schizophrenic break and another time because his defense did not enter an insanity plea for him. In the end, Andrew Cocorales would die by lethal injection on March 16, 1999. He would be the last inmate executed before Governor Pat Quinn abolished the death penalty in Illinois on March 9, 2011. On April 2, 1984, Edward Spritzer pled guilty to the murders of Shuey Mack, Sandra Delaware, Rosebeck Davis, and shooting victim Rafael Torado along with numerous rape and deviant sexual assault charges. He would receive a life sentence for each of the four murder charges. On February 25, 1986, he went on trial for the murder of Linda Sutton, he opted for a bench trial in front of Judge Edward Kowal to determine his guilt, but let a jury decide his sentencing. He admitted he and the other Ripper crew members abducted, handcuffed, raped, and removed her breast. Then they each raped her again before leaving her to die in the field alone. At trial, his defense attorney tried to make Edward look like a victim of Robert Gecht, claiming he was afraid of Robin and had to do what he was told for fear of his own life being harmed. A friend of Edward that was called to the stand to testify claimed that he was easygoing but had been a victim of bullies in the past. While another friend called to testify dismissed those claims and told how Edward had bragged about what they had done to the women and even laughed while telling about how he mutilated and even killed some of the victims. Judge Edward Kowal found him guilty of aggravated kidnapping and murder. The jury would sentence him to death two weeks later. He sat on death row for four years before Governor Ryan gave him clemency and turned his death sentence into life in prison. The Ripper crew were considered a serial killing group, which is extremely rare. Most serial killers like to work alone. In the late 1970s, Robin Gecht worked for PDM contractors, and his boss was none other than serial killer John Wayne Gacy. Gacy will forever be remembered 
as the serial killer who murdered 33 boys and young men buried them under his house and dressed as a clown for children's parties. Once Gacy was arrested and convicted, he told of having an accomplice, someone who helped him with some of his murders. Gacy would never name the person he claimed was his partner. When one of Gacy's employees was found murdered, police thought he was one of Gacy's victims until they determined Gacy was out of town when the man was killed. Gacy claimed that his accomplice had murdered the man without his consent. Do you think it's possible that his partner was robbing Gecht? Hey there, I'm Tony Palacio, host of There Is Something Out There, a new podcast dedicated to true crime, the mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. From the beautiful Pacific Northwest, home of Bigfoot and some of America's most notorious serial killers, I'm going to present to you the world's worst crimes, scariest monsters, strangest stories, tall tales, and totally terrifying testimonials. Join me as we discover that the noises you hear may not just be your imagination. There is something out there. You can find me wherever you get your favorite podcasts from, including Stitcher, Spotify, Player FM, Amazon, and Google Podcasts. Thank you. Like what you're hearing so far? Make sure to never miss an episode by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Now back to the show. This week's paranormal segment is actually a possible cryptid experience. It was emailed in by Lucille Scott, and my buddy and fellow podcaster Tony Palacio is going to read it for us. Hey there. You can just call me Lucille Scott. In 2003 to 2008, I did quite a bit of night fishing at Nakamixon State Park in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. One can usually expect to hear a number of different animals around a lake at night, and I was usually not disappointed. You can expect to hear the croaking sounds of the great blue herons that cruise the waters at night looking for herring. I've heard white-tailed deer give warning snorts and running. I've heard coyotes yipping and howling. And I've even heard fox get their long, warbling mating calls and psychotic-sounding barks. Sound travels pretty well over water, and I've heard a conversation between two people on a boat as if they were standing next to me from over a half a mile away. However, I'm about to share a story about an occurrence which happened in the summer of 2006 to a very close friend of mine who was fishing a different part of the lake than I was at night. My friend's name is Mike. Now, I'm not concerned that anyone will know who I'm talking about because, heck, there must be a thousand guys named Mike that fish Lake Nakamixon. Mike, his girlfriend, who is now his wife, and two other fishermen were fishing an area of the lake known as The Point. Now, this is well known, and it's regarded as one of the best spots to fish at the lake after dark. After a long night of fishing, I talked to Mike the next day to discuss his night. The following is a story that Mike relayed to me. We'd been out at the point for a few hours, and it was getting pretty late. Fishing was good, and I wanted to stay at least another hour. The other three that were with me had stopped fishing at this point, and we were gathered around a small fire we had built. 
Mike hesitated as his face grew more serious. Man, we heard something out there last night that we can't explain. He continued slowly and cautiously. You know, there's not a noise out here that I'm not familiar with, but we all heard something last night that scared my girlfriend so bad she began to cry. The noise started rather quietly and was coming from a distance. First, we thought it might be another person down the shoreline being silly. Sounded a bit like a person doing a poor impression of a gorilla. (laughs) This made me smile a little bit, but Mike wasn't smiling. This noise started to get louder and closer. Now, we were laughing and carrying on as if it was just a big old joke, because it sounded ridiculous. But as it got closer, the noise began to change. Mike stopped for a moment and thoughtfully continued, a pensive look on his face. As it got closer, it was growing louder and more and more powerful. Now, have you ever heard a lion roar at a zoo? Mike asked. Yeah, I have, I said. It kind of fills your body. The roar basically shakes you with the power behind it. Mike went on. Well, that's what it started to sound like. But it obviously wasn't a lion. Like I said before, man, it sounded like a gorilla. But now it sounded like a really pissed off gorilla. We started to realize that whatever it was, it was not another human. Humans don't have the power to make that noise. Mike proceeded to make a noise which he told me was similar to what they heard. It sounded like a human doing a poor impersonation of a pissed off gorilla. Mike continued, There's no sound that I can make that gets anywhere close to the power behind whatever was making this noise. It was obviously big, it was obviously strong, and it was obviously not a human. Man, we were getting pretty scared. Mike continued to tell me that what started out as a bit of fun and jovial laughter regarding the situation quickly turned into a panic as the creature was getting closer and louder. As one person put out the fire, another person started gathering up the equipment. Pretty soon, they engaged in the 10-minute hike back through the woods to their vehicles. They were pretty terrified. They could not put enough space between them and that noise fast enough. And when they get back to the car, they jumped in, locked the doors, and left as quickly as they could. Now, we can't exactly tell you what it was, but we can tell you what it was not. It was not a bear, it was not a fox, coyote, raccoon, or any other normal creature that exists in the woods of Bucks County, Pennsylvania. Whatever it was, it was big, it was powerful, and it did not want them there at the point. Since then, it's been pretty rare to find me or Mike at the point at night without others, definitely not without being armed. I'd like to share another story with you. This one happened to me directly. You know, having been born and raised in Upper Bucks County and having a father who enjoyed hunting and fishing, it was only natural that I should find myself spending a lot of time at Nakamixon State Park. It's beautiful. It's a lake and a recreational area that was created by the Army Corps of Engineers roughly between 1968 and 1974. And it was here that I found myself fishing in a boat offshore for striper hybrids in late afternoon of early September 2008. I was facing the shoreline and I was fishing a pretty deep cut. The shoreline stretches out to my left where the lake narrows through some S-bends until it reaches the dam. To my right, the lake takes a sharp turn at a 90 degree angle away from me to the south. And along the shoreline there's a really well-defined horse trail that stretches the entire length of the wooded shore. Now as the sun was setting deep in the west, I heard a noise for approximately 30 seconds that I cannot explain in any other way than have it been made by some sort of cryptid. I don't make that claim quickly or take it lightly. 
cryptids are a touchy subject and are severely lacking in hard evidence. This anecdote is no different, and it's up to you, the listener, to trust that I'm telling you the truth as I perceived it through the lens of wisdom and experience. The water was calm, and the sun was dipping heavily into a red sky to my right. I heard what began as a loud clatter, something that you might hear in the woods from time to time. A thrashing noise, which grew to a loud scrambling, which then started to move. And when I say move, I mean move fast. Unusually fast. Not only did it start to move along the ridge, but the noise grew to a fury of crashing and scrambling, plowing down everything in front of it, including trees so thick they snapped like quarter sticks of dynamite. Nothing was going to stand in its way. This creature was enormous. It was fast. And nothing was going to stop it as it moved along that ridge line with such a phenomenal speed and fury that I could only stand there staring, mouth agape. And if that wasn't enough, it kept up for a long time. A very long, intense, scary amount of time. Now I could tell you what it wasn't. It wasn't a horse, and it was not a bear. A horse could not have kept that up for more than five seconds before it would have crashed to the ground, broken legs, and horrible noises. Horses are made of less than what you think. They're big creatures, but they're also fragile. My first thought was that it could have been a horse that got away from someone, but I didn't hear a person yelling for a horse. I didn't hear other horses chasing after the horse, and I didn't hear any noises other than the crashing zone. It was not a horse. It also didn't gallop or sound like a horse. It sounded awkward, yet powerful. It was also not a bear. I know bears are renowned for running through the woods and crashing through things, but whatever this was had to have been the size of the biggest Alaskan brown bear that does not exist at Nockamixon State Park in Pennsylvania. Yeah, yeah, we might have a small black bear or two in the area, but nothing of the size and scope of this thing that made this noise that I heard for over a minute. And that should tell you something else about how fast it was moving and how far it moved. Uh, the beast kept it up along the shoreline, which I said before moved away from it at a 90 degree angle to the south. So as it kept moving, it grew quieter and quieter due to the distance it was putting between me and itself. However, along the shoreline, about a half a mile or so away, I could still hear it crashing through the trees. Eventually, it hit a patch of pine trees that were about three quarters of a mile down where a large murder of crows had been nesting until it showed up. Crows carried on for a good two minutes after this thing plowed through the roosting area. It made it close to a mile in about a minute. It was a sound to behold, and it was not caused by any man or beast that I'm familiar with. It's not unusual to find me at the point during the day especially during the summer mushroom season. This is a third thing that happened to us. Let's fast forward to 2013. You know, there comes a time when you have to make a decision based on the evidence that's been presented to you. Regarding cryptids, the evidence is elusive and oftentimes anecdotal. It's dangerous to claim that you had an encounter with a cryptid after just one unexplained experience, and it's still not safe to make that claim after two unexplained occurrences. Unless they happen in the same place. But to have three unexplained and rather confounding experiences in one particular area while not looking for them? Let me stress that I am not a cryptid researcher. None of these experiences occurred when I was actively searching for a cryptid, which I've never done. To have three unexplained experiences in one area that left me scratching my head? The skeptic in me is speechless. I'm a firm believer that certain cryptids do exist, but I'm not quick to assign every little thing that goes bump in the night 
to the Jersey Devil or any other mythical or undocumented creature. I'm very observant, I've spent most of my life in the woods, so I have what you might jokingly refer to as street cred when it comes to identifying wild game and dealing with nature in general. That being said, I'm going to relate an experience that my daughter had at the point. Myself and my two daughters ventured out to the point one day in order that we should get two things done. Catch some sunfish and gather some wild mushrooms to sell at a local restaurant. My eldest daughter was more interested in catching sunfish than gathering mushrooms, so I took my younger daughter with me. We went to an area known to produce the mushrooms I was searching for in the woods along the shoreline in a cove next to the point. That area of the shoreline is pretty steep. The lake in that part is really deep. Along that steep embankment grows a type of mushroom called a black trumpet. As my youngest daughter and I were gathering mushrooms a few hundred yards away, my eldest daughter had the following experience. She was standing on a rocky shelf that had an undercut. She was facing the lake fishing for sunnies. At one point, she stepped down towards the water to unsnag her line, and while she was down there, she began to hear the subtle noises of someone coming. Now, this wouldn't have been usual or strange, as many people visit the area, but as the sound grew closer, she began to hear some heavy footsteps, and something just didn't sound or feel right to her, so she decided to tuck herself under the ledge to hide. After she did that, whatever was approaching literally walked directly on top of the rock that she was hiding under. What happened next was even stranger. She heard a sniffing sound, much like you might hear coming from an animal trying to identify something it could not see. Now, this also wouldn't have been unusual except for the fact that whatever was on top of the rock was much larger than a dog by the sound of it, and it was sniffing around for her. If there were not enough, it also smelled like a combination of a skunk and a wet dog. Now, I'm no expert, but this is part of a pattern that I've heard before when it relates to certain cryptids. The odor was very strong and unavoidable. At that point, I grew concerned because I thought she had been visited by a bear. What happened next shook her up a bit. It concerned me even more and convinced us both that it was not a bear that had stepped on top of that rock. While she was hiding under the rock, the smelly creature was sniffing around on top of the rock for her. Something extremely weird happened. Whatever it was, stopped sniffing around, began picking up and tossing rocks in the water in front of her. Like... In, in an effort to entice her out of her hiding spot, not knocking down rocks from on top of the rocky ledge, literally throwing rocks in the water out in front of her, one by one. It threw no less than five golf ball-sized rocks into the water. Now, I don't have to explain that this, this isn't customary for a bear to intelligently pick up a rock and toss it in hopes to drive out its intended prey. And I use the word prey lightly because target just doesn't sound right. I guess neither does prey. Whatever was standing on top of the rock above my daughter was using an intelligence normally reserved for primates. It was using rocks as tools in anticipation of an intended result. This thing was smart. Eventually, after what seemed like an eternity, my daughter said whatever it was quickly ran off and no more than just a few minutes later, my younger daughter and I returned from gathering mushrooms because it was starting to get dark. This particular event involving my daughter happened after my friend had told me about the disturbing noise that he and his girlfriend had dealt with at the point that one summer night, but this event with my daughter happened just before I heard a creature absolutely juggernaut its way through the woods with an otherworldly power, intensity, and duration. At this point, I have had to make a decision, and you also must make a decision. Is it possible that after three confounding and very unusual events in the same place that I'm mistaken in my own conclusion? Perhaps. 
taken into consideration the numerous other anecdotes that I hear that share similar characteristics and patterns of cryptid experiences, I can only come to a logical conclusion that what took place was the result of contact with an unknown and rare species of an animal some people call a cryptid. Every now and then, someone gets a glimpse of one. We've come up with all kinds of names for these creatures over the centuries, and depending on what part of the world you're in, we've assigned them an almost ethereal and spiritual value. But one thing remains the same worldwide. There is something out there that not only we can't explain, with great exception, we can't seem to properly document one. If you want my opinion, I believe that what we encountered during the period of time was a Sasquatch. I know recently there have been reports of a dogman in Bucks County as well as to the west in Perkimanville and to the north in Monroe County. However, I don't believe this shares the same characteristics that are usually described when one has an encounter with a dogman. I believe that what happened at Nuckamixon State Park is more than likely, however, unlikely by nature to be a Sasquatch. I would like to reiterate that I'm in no way embellishing or fabricating any of these experiences. I never actually set eyes on any of the animals or creatures that I believe we experience in the state park. And if I was someone who would be interested in fabricating stories for notoriety, I could have very easily invented a character which I did not see with my own two eyes in order to give the story some credibility, if that were at all possible. Well, that's that. Thanks for letting me share my experiences, and I really appreciate everybody listening. Be safe out there. Thank you, Lucille, for sharing your experiences with us. And thank you, Tony, for being a part of the show this week. Everybody, make sure you check out his podcast. There is something out there. Well, that's it for this week's episode of the Stuff of Nightmares podcast. Thanks for listening. If you would like to find out more about today's topic, you can check out our sources in the show notes on Facebook and our website at www.thestuffofnightmares.show Like, share, and follow us on Facebook as well as subscribe and give us a positive review on your favorite podcast app or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have an experience that you would like to share with the show, you can either email me to admin at thestuffofnightmarespodcast.show or message me through Facebook. I am your host, Rick Ness, I will see you next episode where I hope to find out what keeps you up at night.